Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics with Ali Ansari and Suzanne Rain, the podcast where we discuss geopolitical issues in historical context. Today it gives us great pleasure to welcome Simon Anholt, the author of The Good Country Equation, the producer of the highly influential Good Country Index, whose TED Talk, Which Country Does the Most Good for the World, has had 12 million views. We talked a couple of weeks ago about ungoverned space with General Sir Graham Lamb and how, although the world is divided into distinct nation states, there are also it's, it's actually messier than that. And this time we're going to develop this conversation and ask what is it that makes a good nation state and what is the nation state for and in Simon's terms a good a good country so Simon I'm going to start by asking you to talk us through how the good country index got started and what are your principles behind it okay um well my day job is a policy advisor I I advise the governments of countries around the world um 60 or more at the last count and increasingly over the last 10 years or so at the level of head of state and head of government, which is nothing to do with how important I am, but just to do with the fact that if you're not advising the policymakers, then you can't have any influence over policy. And what I found uh, was, particularly in the late 90s, that more and more governments were becoming interested in, if not obsessed by, the idea of their country's image. And at first flush, this sounds like a rather trivial concern for governments. I think a lot of us, particularly in the West, are brought up to believe in a rather sharp distinction between perception and reality, which if you think about it is nonsense because as human beings, we only experience reality through our perceptions. So to say that perceptions are unimportant is um, perverse to say the least. Uh, But anyway, I got very interested in people's perceptions of countries and I discovered that governments were interested in that as well. So... I started sort of specialising in that area. The mistake I made uh, was to borrow the term brand or branding from the commercial arena because it seemed to me to be a rather interesting and provocative metaphor. Has globalisation turned the international community, the sacred nation state, into nothing more than a series of products on the shelf of some gigantic global supermarket? Or is there in fact more to it than that? The trouble is that you can't be wry when you're writing in academic journals. And the word brand branding was taken literally. And before I knew where I was, all of the advertising, PR, branding, communications, marketing agencies in the world were rushing around to governments and very often desperately poor country governments saying, you need a better image and you need a better image because it will have a direct impact on the amount of foreign investment you get, the number of tourists you get, the the profit margin at which you export your goods and services, the attention you get from the international media, the number of major events you're asked to host, and so on and so on and so on and so on, all of which is demonstrably true. But the uh, communications agency said, and so therefore what you need is a logo. And uh, (laughs) it sounds absurd, but ever since then, talking about late 1990s, a shocking number of countries, including desperately poor countries, have wasted obscene amounts of taxpayers and donors' money on futile propaganda, um, which doesn't work. So I'm very interested in what does work, and I'm very interested in understanding this simply because the impact of country image is so profound. 
it's easier to say what your country's image doesn't affect than to say what it does affect. It affects absolutely everything. In fact, I would argue and often do that country image is one of the main drivers of inequality and indeed growing inequality because poor countries not only have to uh, have to cope with weak economies and weak infrastructure, they also have to constantly do battle against the headwind of a negative reputation, which means that everything is more expensive and everything is more difficult. A weak image or a negative image is a structural deficit. So I'm sorry, Suzanne, I'm nowhere near to even beginning answering your question, but this is the preamble. I know. And that's so I was very struck, actually, when I was reading some of the things that you wrote exactly about that point, about how your image affects your ability to make deals. To, I mean, for example, to get your initiative supported in the United Nations, you know, you need all the other countries to want to support your thing. And that correlation between a poor country and a negative image and a, a large wealthy country and a negative, it's not a direct equation, is it? Because some of the some of the wealthiest countries in the world find that they don't actually have a lot of support in their initiatives in the United Nations. So 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 let's let's move you on to explain how the good country concept emerged and how that's different from yeah. the branding. So, so that that's that's the slightly quicker part, which is basically that I discovered myself becoming a very a fairly useless advisor to governments because all I could tell them was what didn't work. And I started researching country images back in 2005. I launched a study which, which continues today called the Nation Brands Index. It's now called the Anhalt Ipsos Nation Brands Index because I do it with Ipsos Mori. And every year we, uh, we interview 60,000 people in 20 countries in great detail on their perceptions of 60 countries. And this has now accumulated a database of um, getting on for 1.3 billion data points. So there's a lot of data. Um, I call it the index of ignorance because w these are, for the most part, people who have no direct experience of other countries. And that's what makes it interesting. Anyway, the uh, point was that the Nation Brands Index proved very quickly that there was absolutely no correlation between the amount of money that countries spent on promoting themselves, their assets and their achievements, and the strength or the quality of their international image. Um, so propaganda was clearly useless. Public relations, I could show, was often counterproductive, reminding people of the country they hate often makes things worse. Um, and this has been known in media studies since the 1960s, and so on and so on and so on. So government started saying to me, OK, so, Mr. Clever, what does work? And I thought, huh, interesting question. So um, I took a year off to sort of dive into this uh, billion data point database and ask it the simple question, what does drive or at least correlate with a positive reputation. And I discovered that there were five main drivers, four of which were kind of expected. The, the expected ones were, for example, is it perceived to be technologically advanced because we like those kinds of countries? doesn't mean we wouldn't want to go on holiday to a country that's perceived to be backward, but on the whole, on balance, we like, we like modern countries. Powerful countries in the Joseph Nye sense of hard power, we tend to respect. They have big, powerful images. They may not be totally positive, but that's a component. Relevance is important. Um, I may be fascinated by Guatemala, but living in the United Kingdom, it's unlikely that I perceive it as having a direct impact on my life. But the one that stood out, the unexpected one, was by a wide margin the most powerful one, and that was the perception that the country is 
a good member of the international community, that it contributes to humanity and the planet outside its own borders. So revelation, all of these countries that were blowing obscene amounts of taxpayers and donors money on bragging about their assets and achievements were completely getting the wrong end of the stick because nobody cares how wonderful it is to live in your country by definition because they don't live there. And there is by definition no point in, in uh, advertising your country because by definition everybody else has already got a perfectly good country of their own and they're not in the market for a new one. So the only thing that people are going to be interested in is whether they're glad that you exist as a foreigner. And they'll be glad that you exist because you are perceived to be working hard to tackle the challenges of the modern age, the things that keep us awake at night. So Norway, a relatively marginal country by traditional measures, has a massive positive image, very near to the top of the, of the nation brands index. Why is that? Because people associate it with uh, good neighborliness. Um, they've heard of a thing called the Oslo Peace Accords, and they're not quite sure what it is, but they know it's something to do with conflict, which they hate. And they suspect that Oslo may be in Norway, and that's enough to make them admire Norway. On the other hand, they don't know very much about Russia, but they have a perception that it disturbs the international order because that's what they're constantly hearing. And therefore, they do worry a bit about Russia before they drop off to sleep at night. And the consequence of that is that the world's population is very much more likely to buy a Norwegian product or service, hire a Norwegian person, go on holiday to Norway, invest in the Norwegian economy, listen to what a Norwegian politician or diplomat says than in the case than as, as would be the case with Russia. So, so we're talking about, yes, perceptions, but we're talking about them influencing, having a dramatic influence over the flows of trillions of dollars and not just money. Ali, yes. Shall I, I leap in? Um, yeah. What I was, I mean, I, I'm interested in your distinction between, you know, in, in terms of, in a sense, what we're looking at is, is prestige or authority, I suppose. Is, is that right? As sort of the, the, the sort of prestige that a country can can present to the outside a, world? Not quite a synonym for it, but that is an important part of it. Yeah. Um, the trouble is I don't really have a better word than brand. Sure. Um, because it, although it's I don't very, think it's that bad, to be honest. I, I, I think brand probably you, does work. The, the danger with brand is that it, it's, it, sounds, it doesn't just sound like an observation about the importance of reputation. It sounds like yeah. a promise. It yeah. sounds to governments who are in a hurry, especially if they're democratically elected, they're always in a hurry. Yes. But if you don't like the image you've, you've got, if you're not satisfied with it, and after all, who is? Um, I mean, Finland are bitter about their image. You know, <laughs> how crazy is that? Um, but, um, uh, you know, it seems to suggest that you, there's this box of magic tricks that comes from the commercial sector called branding which can, if only you can spend Nike-type money, you could have a Nike-type brand in a matter of weeks. And that's a very, very dangerous presumption to make. And it causes, as I said before, an awful lot of waste of money. So are you, I mean, are you saying it has a, you know, the historical, I suppose, the, the, the historical legacy, in a sense, I, I suppose, of a country does play a role in that? I mean, it's a longer-term thing. It's something that yeah. has to gestate in a way, I suppose. Is that, is that the way you'd see it? Absolutely right. And it's, and it's a key point. I mean, the, the first thing I discovered um, w when I originally started running the Nation Brands Index, um, I, I did it quarterly in 2005 and quickly discovered that I that I'd spawned the most boring social survey ever <laughs> created because it just didn't change. People simply don't change their minds about countries at the level at which we're, um, we're, we're measuring them. Um, and that is partly because uh, they don't think about other countries. 
I did a stupid little study which suggested that people around the world only ever think about three countries. Their own country, a bit, not a lot, unless it's contested. I mean, Syrians think a lot about Syria, but um, most people don't think much about their own country. A second country, which is usually the United States of America, because it has relevance, it has the power to shape their lives. And a third country, which varies according to who you are and what you're up to. So, you know, as uh, it, could, it could be Guatemala, which I randomly mentioned before, because you want to go on holiday there. That's it. Three countries. Last time I checked, there were 205. So it basically means that to all intents and purposes, for the vast majority of the world's population, 202 countries simply don't exist. So it's not surprising that we make do with these very fixed, very simplistic prejudices and are very, very reluctant to change them because to change them means to unpick a lot of assumptions that we've used as navigation clues for uh, this globalized world in which we live. And we will go to remarkable lengths to avoid changing our minds about countries. Countries can, I mean, the United States of America, great example, has spent most of the last 300 years trying to destroy its image and it still hasn't succeeded. Um, and uh, interesting point. Do you see it also as, um, I mean, how do you fit it in with the concept of soft power? I mean, do you see it as something quite different to soft power? Well, so soft, soft power is a, um, a sort of um, a parallel observation, if you like. I suppose what, what I'm doing with, with this work, which let us try to remember before the end of this conversation is not what I spend my life doing. It's just an interesting subject that I used to spend a lot of time working on. But with this whole area of national image, the measurement and conceivably even the management of national image, that goes into a soft power construct much more deeply and much more systematically. And that's not to criticise uh, Nye's model, which I think has been of fundamental importance to our understanding of the world. But basically, he just made the necessary observation that, that there is attractive power and there's coercive power. So what I've done with this work is to go, uh, if you like, much more deeply into the nature of this particular form of um, attractive power, the attractive power of states, and how is it composed and how do you measure it and how do you measure its impact and so on and so on and so on and how do you manage it? Is it possible to manage it? That's the big question. Because obviously if you could, that would have a gigantic impact on the prosperity and progress of your, of your nation. So soft power is a very, very important underpinning concept. I don't like the term um, for the simple reason that it, uh, we shouldn't be talking about power in the age of the global challenges. Because soft power, hard power, whether you're hitting people with, with, with AK-47s or pillows, it's still power. And it's still based on an assumption, if I dare say so, a somewhat American assumption, that international relations is fundamentally all about how to achieve ascendancy over other powers. And we somehow need to all grasp the message that if humanity is to survive and prosper in the 21st century, we have to go a little bit beyond that rather basic assumption that it's a contest. And one of the things I often say is that what we really need, and this is what the whole good country co construct is all about, is trying to see if we can change the fundamental culture of governance from fundamentally competitive, which is what it's, which is what it's been since Westphalia and long before, to fundamentally collaborative, which doesn't mean self-sacrifice, of course. Nothing could be more absurd than the idea of a nation sacrificing itself for the benefit of another nation. That, that's daft. Nothing could be more obvious than America first. I mean, duh, Donald Trump. I mean, if you're elected to be the leader of a country, of course you put that country's interest first. What I guess I'm saying is it doesn't mean every other country has to come last. 
And the tragedy of Trump for America is that America of all countries is the one that perhaps has tried hardest over the years to show that you can aspire to be first and help others to aspire to be pretty high up in the ranking as well. And the rising tide benefits all ships. So sad if they've dropped that and sad if it turns out to have been a semi-permanent drop. Um, but the, 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 the basic point is that this is not about achieving ascendancy over other countries. This is about commingling collaboration and competition, which can sit very happily together. The private sector showed us this with co-opetition way back in the 1970s. It's still the way a large number of important industries work today. And co-opetition is an experiment that's decades overdue for government. Um, you and I met in um, an event in central London, which was essentially about the revolution that is coming on AI and technology. And I think we both were shocked by listening to one scientist after another talking about the billions of pounds, dollars that are being spent on technological research advances, always with the line that we have to do this or we as a country are going to be left behind. Beaten by and, the Chinese. Yeah, we're going, to, we're going to be beaten, but not just by the Chinese, because mm. the UK has an independent AI research programme, as does Germany, as does France, as does America, as does, you know, any country that aspires to be a modern, forward, technological, world-leading uh, competitor. And that's the tension at the heart of this, isn't it? Because I think the point that you're making very clearly again and again is actually... This competition is going to get us nowhere when we have limited resources. We have limited resources and half of the world is, is being left behind. And you've you've talked quite convincingly about something called the dual mandate for for leaders or for countries, which is which is to have uh, a single, you know, the single mandate is to do the best for your people. And that is what comes naturally to a leader to try and do that in order to boost their own popularity. But then this sense that a modern leader needs to be prepared for this level of responsibility on on a on a global scale to to find ways of collaborating and that actually paradoxically that might end up making them a better leader at home as well because you're raising the sort of the reputation of the country in the eyes of other countries that's i think that's your optimistic and possibly bucking the historical trend vision for the future do you want to elaborate on how that might be possible? Well, that was a, I'm not kidding, that was a really good summary. I, I, I wish I'd had you when I was writing the book. It could have been 100 page short, pages shorter. But yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the good country thesis, if that's not to over-dignify it. That basically, I suppose up until now, the, the, the countries, the groups, the individuals that perceive the importance of multilateralism and collaboration, perceive that it's our only route to survival have relied on appeals to the morality of nation states to get them to work together because it's as i would say it's not like we don't know the solutions to the problems that we're facing it's not like the the the, the answers to the sustainable development goals are a mystery we know exactly how to fix climate change we know exactly how to fix pandemics we know exactly how to fix poverty and terrorism and starvation and inequality and nuclear proliferation and and species loss and biodiversity loss and all the rest of it. The reason we don't do it is because the problems have become bigger than any individual nation state, and therefore they must cooperate and collaborate in order to achieve, in order to, to, to implement those remedies. And that's where the system falls down. So there are no mysteries here. It's the culture of governance, governance that prevents us from achieving the SDGs, if that's the, the way we want to frame it. 
And up until now, the people who've understood this have been limited to rather weak appeals to, uh, to a long-term view or even to morality. But the nation state is not a moral entity, sadly, and the people who run them are not moral entities when they're running them, um, because that's not their job and that's not what they're expected to do. So I think the breakthrough here is that potentially me having come to this subject through the rather strange route of country image have discovered this, this lever, which is the self-interest of principled behavior on the part of nation states. That you're, we're not going to countries and saying, please do this because our survival depends on it, or please fight climate change because you'll go to heaven. What I'm able to say to, to governments and say it every day now is, if you do this, it is in your direct, immediate economic benefit, uh, interest to do, to do so, and I can prove that. And so far, it, it works. I can, I've been to, uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so, since this thesis began to emerge, I've been to quite a large number of governments and said to them, look, this is what happens, and this is what you gain, and it's not long-term, and it's not abstract, and by the way, this is why your population are going to love it, if you frame it correctly, and they've tried it, and it works. So it's kind of a breakthrough. Can I, can I just jump? So basically, it's slightly like you're selling altruism on the basis of self-interest. Uh, yes, I, I, I guess I'm, I always get ticked off when I say I'm not talking about altruism because the people who, who, who like altruism and push the concept say that the whole point of altruism is that it's not self-sacrifice. So let, let's not get tangled up in definitions there. But this is definitely intelligent, informed self-interest. And I'm not a cynic, but when you're dealing with nation states and the people who run them, you do have to consider their self-interest, of course, because it's something akin to a primary driver for them. But also just as a sort of practical person, I prefer this. I don't like those wishy-washy kind of think of the future children as yet unborn and your legacy to them type, type, because I know politicians, I've worked with them all my life. And, you know, if you get them at the right moment, at the end of the day, over drinks, they might shed a tear or two over that concept. But it's not the way they are during the working day. The way they are during the working day is, how can I keep my mandate? How can I get my mandate renewed? How can I keep my government and the opposition under control? How can I make people understand and agree with what I'm doing? And most politicians I've found are pretty well-intentioned. I've, I've seldom met a rogue running a country, very seldom. They're normally there because they have a sense of public duty of some sort. And in an increasingly difficult set of circumstances, they're doing their best to achieve that. And that's part of the reason why they love this, because they're saying, my God, you're telling me that I can actually do what my conscience tells me is the right thing to do, because they have the UN uh, banging on at them every day about the SDGs, but without necessarily losing the presidency at the next election, perhaps even showing myself as a as a rather unusual and innovative leader, and perhaps even getting a bit of international profile, so that when I do lose an election, I've got another career afterwards as a kind of, uh, you know, Yale professor or international guru. So, so everything sort of fits into place. I, I guess what often occurs to people at this point in the argument is that they've heard all this before, and they have. It's called corporate social responsibility, and it's exactly analogous to what corporations discovered. Um, I argued in an earlier book of mine in the 12th century, but let's agree with the management consultants and say that it was discovered 30 years ago. Corporate social responsibility is exactly the same set of mechanisms being operated on countries by the same people who operate them on companies. So the same, the same young adults 
who won't buy uh, training shoes of brand X because they don't like what they've heard about conditions in the sweatshops in Bangladesh will also not go on holiday to uh, country Y because they don't like what they've heard about the government's stance on LBGTQ rights or whatever it may be. Why wouldn't it be so? It's the same. Uh, I, I've often said there's only one superpower left on the planet, and that's international public opinion. And in one way or another, we're all of us trying to do diplomacy with that superpower. It has a mental age of about seven and a half. That's not because people are stupid, but because if you want to get across to that something to, persuasively, motivatingly to that number of people, it really has to be death simple. And, and so that cohort, seven, eight, nine billion people out there, what they're saying is, we want you to be good. We want you to preserve the planet. We want you to make this place better for all of us. And we want you to make our nation great at the same time. And those two things are compatible. I want to, you've made me think about um, a long-standing problem that we've had in the UK, and I think probably in other countries as well, about international aid. Because you're saying a good country is, is one which gives more to humanity than another country, or, or that gives to humanity. And the UK has had a stance for a long time that, that we give a significant portion of our GDP on international aid. It's less than it was, but it's still a significant portion. And that's sent all around the world. And one of the complaints that came back was nobody even notices. We're spending all this money. And, and arguably, if, if you're really trying to help people, you don't want them to notice. But then they said, well, if, if we're trying to you know, build our reputation and be known as a good country, we're spending billions how can we get people to notice? So then you went through this sticking a label on everything thing. And I think USAID did the same. And and to me, sometimes that's great. And people say, oh, thank you very much, UKAID. US. And other times people think, oh, those Americans, again, trying to buy us all off with their massive aid package. But, but obviously there's something, again, we've all become actually quite competitive about our aid branding, haven't we? So Turkish aid branding in the Horn of Africa, or we're all doing it. And it doesn't actually get any of us any good points, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and that's for the simple reason, and I've encountered this over and over again um, with governments who are, who are miffed that they, you know, they expend a great deal of political capital as, as well as, as treasure in helping poor countries and don't seem to get any credit for it. And yeah, generally speaking, the answer that's given to them is you shouldn't, you should, you should not seek uh, praise. <laughs> and, and what you just described is is very typical of our culture, the British culture, and not not and and, and not a few others as well. That we 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 have a tradition in our culture that a good deed is devalued in the bragging of it. Uh, that if you brag about what you do, it devalues the gesture. That's not shared in all cultures, of course. Um, it's a fairly local phenomenon. And the, like all of these issues, it has to be looked at quite forensically from culture to culture. This is not a universal by any means. Lots of people think you're bloody stupid if you don't tell people about the good you're doing. But just, just to put that to one side for a moment, almost all the rich countries that give large sums of money in aid discover that it doesn't really buy them a great deal of gratitude, except among the, the immediate recipients of it. And of course, that's great, but then not, let's be honest, your primary target audience. When, when countries do this, um, their primary target audience is international public opinion, their own voters, other leaders, the multilateral organizations, and so on and so forth. And the reason for that is because it's so boring and predictable, and it doesn't look expensive. 
you know, rich countries giving away a bit of their spare cash to poor countries looks like the easiest thing on earth to do if you don't have any money. And the, and the, the reaction tends to be, well, they wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't cheap for them. They wouldn't be doing it if they couldn't easily afford it. And nothing could be more normal. And there's something also rather repellent about rich donor states demanding gratitude for giving away their spare money um, to countries that need it, particularly when the poverty of those countries may well be partly their fault in the first place. So I think the simple practical answer to this is that there are many, many, many other ways in which countries, including poor countries, can earn a better reputation that don't involve money at all. So the Good Country Index, which uh, I have been running annually since 2012, is a measurement of reality, not of perception. And it's driven by 35 data sets that come mostly from the UN family that tries to measure in reality what countries contribute, positive or negative, outside their own borders. Nothing to do with what goes on domestically. Not because that's unimportant, but just because it's not what I'm measuring here. And of those 35 data sets, only two or three are really directly about money. I mean, it would be perverse if I excluded foreign aid because obviously it's a good thing to do, a useful and a necessary thing to do. But you can also gain points by receiving aid. If you receive aid and spend it well, that means you are equally a functioning part of a healthy multilateral system, given the, the, the reality of inequality. And that's why, for example, Kenya ranked in the top 30 in the first edition of the Good Country Index, despite having a very small economy, because it participates in the aid system and it participates responsibly on the whole. So countries don't get to the top by giving away lots of spare cash. And that's reflected in the Good Country Index. It's also reflected in international public opinion. But there's a broader truth as well, which is that if you want to capture people's interest in imagination, you have to do something original. And that doesn't mean doing something boring like giving a lot of aid and then spending a whole load of extra money to try and force it down the throats of the media using a PR agency. It means doing something really rather extraordinary that demonstrates, that proves day in, day out, strategically, consistently, that you care about our shared future and our shared resources and our shared planet. And that's the truth. Developing a, a vaccine be important in this sort? What do you think? Um, who knows? I mean, developing a vaccine is a little bit like giving aid in the sense that um, the kinds of countries that are able to develop vaccines are simply performing the sorts of behaviours that people expect them to perform. So, you know, America produces Moderna, big deal. Who else is going to produce Moderna? You know, Britain, okay, well, that's a bit more interesting because it's a small uh, country that's passed its best. So um, maybe the fact that it's able to produce a vaccine means that it's not as completely past its best as I thought. But, you know, India producing vaccines, now that makes people stop and think for a moment. It, you know, I don't know the first thing about PR or media, but I remember somebody once telling me that the fundamental rule of, of, of PR is that dog bites man isn't a story a man bites dog is a story <laughs> and and that's the point isn't it there has to be something a bit arresting or magical about well i suppose i suppose the the oxford astrazeneca was the only one to be sort of basically produced uh, where, where they i mean the, to, to distribute to the third world at cost price so that must count for something surely. i'm sure it does i'm sure yeah. it does but uh, it's very very important in all of these instances to keep in mind that this vast cultural construct called the international image of a country is, if you like, a 20,000 ton weight on one side of the scales. And a bit of vaccine diplomacy is a half gram weight on the other side of the scales. And to move the image of a country is a 
30, 40, 50 year process. I mean, for, um, to, to the, the best examples I can think of are Japan and Germany, which at the end of the Second World War were pariahs, were countries that nobody would even dream of buying a product from, going on holiday to, hiring a person from, et cetera, et cetera. Today, 70, 80 years later, they are, well, Germany is the most admired country on the planet, uh, according to the Nation Brands Index. That's really quick. So I, this at this point in our podcast, I think we should get to the brass tacks, which is um, obviously it's all there on the Internet. Everybody who wants to know where their country comes in the annually updated index can look. I know that Ali has a few personal questions that he'd like to put to I'm you. I'm absolutely determined to get to this one, Simon. And well, actually, I was very interested to see the UK was sort of in top 10 sort of range, which is quite interesting, actually. Uh, given all the all the various legacy issues obviously but um well we don't measure really legacy issues that's an important point to make yeah um i do get a lot of people writing to me and saying have you never heard of adolf hitler why is germany so high and it's it, it, you know it's easy to mock but the, the simple reality is that this kind of data doesn't go back that far and even if it did it would be an impossibly subjective analysis to make i mean you know how many points do i deduct from the germany of today uh, for their sins, for the sins of their grandparents and great grandparents. I mean, you know, I, I'm not that wise. And so that's why it's a snapshot. It's a point in time. It simply can't be anything else. And anyway, even if I did suddenly decide that Hitler was too important to leave out, where do I draw the line? Do I stop measuring in 1939? And then I've forgotten the First World War. So these, these accounts of past injustices that have random historical cutoff points don't please me in the least. And I've, I've not endeared myself to large numbers of Indians who've written to me angrily about the position of the UK in the Good Country Index and reminding me of the British Empire. And I just write back and remind them of the Mongol Empire and um, uh, sorry, the, 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 the various Indian empires of, of earlier periods and just say one of the things that human history teaches us. And this is not attempting to excuse the perfidy of the British Empire by any in any sense at all. But human beings are capable of really bad behavior. And if left to their devices sufficiently long enough, most of them will indulge in bad behavior. And pretty much everything that we can recognize as a nation state today, you, if you only go back far enough, you'll find that they've been bad too. Now, I'm not saying that some are not badder than others. Of course mm. they are. And we can talk about that all day long, but it's immensely subjective. Anyway, sorry, Ali, you were going to So, no, I mean, that, I mean, that's a fascinating point in itself, actually, that the, you know, so you've got a historical legacy, but it doesn't, obviously it's a snap, uh, snapshot. But I suppose the one, and, and I know Suzanne's been waiting for me to ask this question. She's uh, with bated breath. So I was looking at Iran and we sort of imagine, obviously, Iran would be quite low down because of various, obviously, image problems that it certainly has and obviously its activities. But the curious uh, one that struck me was the fact that it was so low on culture. Now, we're talking here about the good country index, right? Not That's the right. Yeah. Index. Yeah, so okay. one of the one of the criteria was culture and that it was very low down on culture. And that I, I, just surprised me. Yeah. Well, before I answer that, let me tell you also about Iran's position in the Nation Brands Index, because the, the, the two indexes make a really useful pair, because the one measures reality insofar as it's possible to measure it, i.e. the real actual external impact of that country on the rest of the world outside its own borders. And the Nation Brands Index measures people's perceptions of that country. So we can see whether there's a gap between perception and reality and whether there is indeed, as there always appears to be, this strong correlation 
between how much good a country does outside its borders and how respected and admired and liked it is. So Iran ranks very, very low in both indexes. So first of all, the nation brands index, basically um, the reason why Iran has got such a very, very weak image, even on, for example, culture, cultural heritage, arguably the birthplace of Western civilization, 6,000 years of continuous cultural history. Thank you, thank and, you. And there are American, other people who need to listen to that, but yes, carry on. <laughs> um, uh, the, the average American, just to pick a country almost at random, ranks Iran on perceptions of cultural heritage, 48 out of 50, about 20 places lower than Canada, a country that was invented last week. So something's going wrong here. And, and it tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us that um, human beings or international public opinion, this mythical superpower, is allergic to conflict. It cannot tolerate conflict. Any association with conflict, no matter who is the perceived perpetrator and who is the perceived victim, will shred your reputation possibly for generations. So Israel and Palestine, for example, both have crap images because they're both associated with conflict. People don't sit around spending the whole day thinking, whose fault is it? Not much. Perhaps more in the case of Israel-Palestine than many other conflicts. But the association with conflict contaminates the image and therefore the performance of the country to an astonishing degree. And that's the story of, of Iran in, in the modern age. Now, the Good Country Index, when we say culture, what are we actually measuring? We, we are measuring, insofar as the data permits us to, how effectively Iran or another country shares its cultural production with the rest of the world outside its borders at this moment in time. And Iran, for all kinds of very understandable reasons, doesn't. It doesn't export very much culture. And that's why it ranks very, very low indeed. Now, a country that doesn't rank high in the good country index is not a bad country. The opposite of good is not bad. The opposite of good is inward looking or selfish. And uh, Iran has got quite enough problems of its own to worry about, um, as indeed have all of the countries that are near the bottom of the good country index. So this is not a value judgment. This is just an observation. And when we were chatting before, you also mentioned Belgium, which is the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, Belgium ranks very high indeed on the culture ranking. And that's because Belgium, and remember, this is always relative to the size of its economy. We, we, we normalize by GDP in order to create a level playing field. Otherwise, it would just be unfair on the smaller countries and the poorer countries. So a lot of international rankings do that. It's fairly normal practice. And GDP works surprisingly well. And to do that, we tried it with GNI and all kinds of other things, but it, they all produce the same sort of result. So Belgium, relative to the size of its economy, is very, very active at sharing its culture externally. So Belgium coming near the top in the, in the Good Country Index on the culture dimension is not saying Belgium has more culture than any other country. It's just saying that relative to, the, to its size, it is more active at sharing it internationally. And the reason why we measure that is because that's part of being a good country, sharing your culture. Simon, we've come to the end of our time. I think that there were a number of things that you said at the end there, which I think are really important for the current geopolitical sort of conversations that we're having that that issue about whose fault is a conflict it doesn't actually matter you're all associated with it the, the question about how you share your culture in a positive way is one I think that all nations should be thinking about and 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 your on your broader message essentially about how 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 to incentivize collaboration on the biggest challenges that we've got is a really really important one so thank you for sharing it with us 
and we're very grateful for your time and we're all going to go off and um, do something good and neighborly today hopefully our listeners are too quite right remember that being a good country starts with being a good individual thank you thank you